All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. If you're new here, welcome. If uh, if you're regulars, nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. No, no, no. Thanks. Nice to see you. Uh, if you're new, just hang out. Uh, you'll you'll get the hang of it. Just sit and listen. That's all. Sit and listen. Or, or listen wherever you're going to listen. Drive and listen. Run and listen. Walk and listen. Cook and listen. I don't... I, whatever you got to do. Whatever you got to do. If you're in the hospital, hope you're feeling all right. If you're using me to get to sleep, which I find many people do. Uh, good night. Sleep well. All right? I'm trying... I don't want to be too heavy if you're just uh, trying to doze off a little bit. If you're uh, sweating while you're listening to me. It's fine. Hey, look, wherever you got to take me. If you're on a plane, whatever you got to do. Today I talked to uh, Michael Mann. Michael Mann is one of the great directors. And I, I don't know everything about him. I did go and watch a lot of films I had seen of his, like Thief and Manhunter. And I rewatched Heat right before I talked to the guy. He's also the director and writer of movies like The... Uh, Last of the Mohicans, The Insider, Ali, Miami Vice. And he's here because he's now a novelist. He just wrote Heat 2, which he plans to make into a movie. But right now it's a book and it comes out in a couple of weeks. But I've been very taken with uh, the work of Michael Mann lately. I, I, this, I watched Thief like three or four times. I watched it when it came out. I watched it again in between when it came out and when I talked to uh, James Kahn, I, I watched it just before I talked to James Kahn. It was James Kahn's favorite work that he did, R.I.P. Uh, we lost James Kahn. And I just, I do need to tell you that I recorded this interview with Michael Mann before James Kahn died. But, uh, but James Kahn loved Thief. But it was exciting to talk to the guy. Enjoyed it. Hands-on. All the interviews are hands-on. I can never sweep through an interview. I can't autopilot an interview. Everything's all in. So Vegas, the shows were great. And the area was great and I relaxed. I didn't go to a, I didn't go to a casino at all. I ran into... A, well, I knew he was out there. He hit me to being out there. John, uh, John Swab, the director I talked to about um, body brokers... He was out there just burning off some. Uh, he's like, uh, he just he, he had a deal on a room, and he just finished shooting a movie, so he's taking a break. And we hung out. We did we did a little secret society situation, and then we had some breakfast. He gave me this amazing book. He gave me a copy of uh, Larry Clark's Tulsa. It just it, it almost made me cry. Just he he's friends with I think Larry Clark's guy, the archivist, the estate manager, whatever. But it was it was. It's one of the great books of photography, one of the great photojournalistic, a pioneer of the raw shit. But it's like a first edition signed to come with a print, came with a print. Larry Clark's Tulsa. What a great, those two books that Larry Clark did, Teenage Lust and Tulsa, man, just game changing photographs. And I was so fucking thrilled. Couldn't believe it. It came out of nowhere. What a guy. He came to both shows, talked movies and talked uh, sobriety and talked life and had nice, uh, nice time for a few hours. 
I went to the club, uh, the Wise Guys Club. Keith opened up a club. He's got the club in Salt Lake City. He's got another one. A couple in Utah, but he opened up this Vegas joint. But the shows were just, the club is great. I, I don't, it's, that arts district is, it's great. You don't even feel the fucking weight or the pull of the uh, strip. And four shows, and they were, I mean, those club shows, man, when there's no distance between me and an audience, 150 people, I'm going to put it out there. And those second shows get loopy and weird and riffy. That second show Saturday night was dirty and good. I've been doing this a long time, and i got to be honest with you. I'm fucking good at it. And little Esther, Esther Pavitsky was great. Great opener for me. And I'm just trying, I'm using openers a little more now so I can get this, uh, so I can get the time to where it needs to be, like 73, 75 minutes tight figure out what needs to go what doesn't need to go my father uh was there friday night first show his wife drove him out she's got family nearby so they came and he saw the shit he saw the shit he saw the new stuff i'm doing about him it you know i i didn't know if i was going to be able to do it but i did it and uh he took it like he usually does and laughed and it's only now i think that you know he probably forgot by now but i don't know (laughs) i don't know I don't know. It was good to see him. This stuff is really tightening up and coming along. There's like four massive bits in there. I'm excited to do the hour months from now for HBO. But I'm working on it and always new stuff. Did some, uh, I like when I do those riff shows, like second show Saturday night where I just, I surprise myself. And I'm like, where did that come? It's a gift, man. It comes from where it comes from. That weird mingling of the ether and whatever's in your brain. Those moments where something is just revealed to me at the same time it's revealed to the audience. And I'm like, I never thought about that. Where did that come from? Great audiences. I should mention that uh, young comic, Jack Knight, who I didn't know that well, but I used to see a lot at the comedy store. Um He's a peer in the sense that we work together. He's he's passed. He's he's dead at 28, and it's fucking horrendous. It's just horrendous. The the void it leaves in the community when somebody tragically dies one way or the other. He was a funny guy, and uh, and I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. It's a tragic, tragic loss. So look. Michael Mann is uh, one of the great directors. No one, you know, he's got his own style. He's an auteur. And uh, he's, he's old school in the way of being a guy that's in charge of his shit. Like, I've talked to a lot of these guys. You know, Ridley Scott, William Friedkin. These, um, you know, big personality that uh, you know a tone that they create that is uniquely there certainly michael mann definitely friedkin too but uh he's here to talk about not only his life and his movies but this new novel heat 2 a novel comes out on august 9th uh, but you can pre-order it right now and uh, this is me talking to michael mann about a lot of stuff and again this was uh recorded before the passing of james Kahn. 
I'll tell you what I did today. Yeah. I watched Heat. Okay. <laughs> I watched... I And to be honest with you, I don't think I've seen it since it came out. I mean, what what year did it come out? 95. I, I watched... I remember that. Those of us who were into films were so excited that De Niro and Pacino were going to yeah. be together. Let me ask you just out of the gate because I'm curious after watching it. Were they in the in, together? Of course. Okay. Because yeah. I remember there was a rumor around that they no, were. No, it's nonsense. It's nonsense, right? Because, yeah, I had a third camera. They were shooting a two-shot. But every, no time, yeah. every time we went to it... You know, the, the you you know the, the air let out of the balloon. You lost the intimacy. Sure. So, so therefore, it was just you always, just kept it going like that. Kept going like that, and not only that, but I had I shot with three cameras simultaneously. Yeah. So if the one camera shooting Al moved this much, you'd see the other camera. Oh, okay. And the reason for that was because I knew these guys were so. Um, you know, uh, that, that scene is the nexus of everything. Yeah. And, yeah. and we really protected it to yeah. make sure it was going to be shot at exactly the right time and how we prepped it. And it was so attuned to it yeah. that I knew that there was this, there'd be all kinds, at every, every level, there'd be this organic performance. So yeah. that take eight would be different than take nine for both guys. Okay. Because if, if Al did the slightest shift of his body a yeah. little bit and his right hand moved down his thigh yeah. a little bit where his gun might be holstered, you could see De Niro spot that. And so every tiny little thing, and his as brilliant animals, which we are, we yeah. perceive more than we know we perceive. Right. And there's an organic unity. So almost the whole scene is all take 11. No it's kidding. All one take, you know. And, you, and, you, and, and De Niro did notice when he moved his hand? Like in his character, he noticed that. Like, totally. They're so totally in character and so of that moment. And um, because it's, if, you, if you imagine how distant they are from each other yeah. as, as opposites, and um, and uh, Pacino knows that uh, there's no point in maintaining his blown surveillance. I've sure. got nothing to no, lose right. Right. while I'm more about him. So he does the outrageous thing and wants to meet him. De Niro has the same motive. Why yeah. does he go to have coffee with him? Because, because he's got I'm going to get something. Right. And also he knows that Pacino's not going to move on him unless he gets him big. He's not going to move on unless he gets him big and I'm going to know something. Yeah. And I may, he's thinking to himself, I may find myself in a jam and I'm jackpotted and I will have a split second to intuitively decide whether to zig or zag. Yeah. And I will get something from this meeting, this guy who's after me. So both are thinking the same thing. So they go, now they start with... The dialogue about uh, you know where were you in prison and all those. Stuff. By okay. the end of it, they're sharing their dreams in the most right. intimate moments. Yeah, the way they see the world okay. is the same. Yeah, right. Both know time is short. Both know like good existentialists in a funny way with a very lowercase sure. e that use what you build into it. That's what that's what is. That's what reality is. So they're the only two people in the universe of the film who have the same perspective on life. Yeah. Uh, obviously, obviously, the Pacino character, Hannah, has got a compass of sorts. There's objective reality, sociopath, and Macaulay, except for his small group, does not. Um, if you get if you get in his way, uh, you know if it rains you get wet. That's his attitude about about all life. I'm talking about Macaulay. Yeah. Sure, sure. But I mean, what's interesting though in, in that, it, yeah, he's got a moral compass. Pacino does, but it seems like even like going back to Thief, that the the sort of bond and the loyalty and the sense of uh, 
of I don't know if it's friendship uh, that thieves have is is somewhat of a compass. Oh, that that's true. No, within that nuclear family, yeah. he's bonded to his crime partners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and he that's why he rescues Shahrlis, the Valcoma character. But both of them see life as transient and and momentary and. You know, and, and they're, they're, so, they're solitary. They're, they're, they're solitary, right. but, but they're the only characters like that in the film. That's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. because uh, uh, Sizemore's character is like dug in. He saved his money. He's got it. You know, he could have a life. Sizemore's is fam- Mr. Family Values, right? Right. Kind and of, that cut that you made, you know, to the cops at the same base, almost the same party, right? Right. Yeah. To show that, and then, uh, it, but I, I, what I didn't remember, which was most of the movie, and because it's right in my head today. I, I, and it's rare that I think this, and it, obviously you wrote a, a, an entire book to sort of do the before and after of, of that film, uh, uh, was that when he goes back because of that, you know, that flaw, that flaw of pride to go kill Wango, or what, what is his name? Right, Wango. Wango. It was satisfying. Like, it, like it, there's the anti-hero, you're rooting for the, the bad guy a lot of times. I wouldn't have minded if if De Niro lived and got away, I kind of wanted it. Right, but his decision to go shoot that guy like he shot him in in the very specific way that he shot him. You know, look at me, look at right. me. And he walked. I felt like that character had done everything he needed to do in his life. Twenty minutes earlier in the film, <laughs> the guy that became the movie never ever would have gone to Wangro. Yeah, and the reason he went for Wangro is because he's lost his navigational instrument altogether. But it's ego, right? It's not ego. No, it's, no. It's that he's is that he has uh, he lives by a rigid code of have nothing in your life. You can't walk out in twenty right. seconds flat. No right. attachments because right. and it's a risk versus reward equation. And so he lives in a universe in which there's total causality and it's totally rigid. And and the conceit of the film is that the way you think of the world is the way your fate's going to turn out. Okay. okay. As opposed to like Shahrlis is postmodernist and he does all kinds of mistakes and he still Val slides. Val Kilmer. Right, Val yeah. Kilmer. Not De Niro. De Niro's character, if he deviates from this rigid, almost catechism of how to be, Everything's, there has to be repercussions. Right. Everything's and, chaos. And he never would have, when they, when he and Edie drive through the, the tunnel where the mm-hmm. light changes, <laughs> yeah. you know, he never would have been swayed but you know, it's almost like it's almost like I I bared my chest to her. I, I I ripped my heart out of my chest and just said, you know, everything I wanted to do and everything I've been doing this for doesn't mean anything if you're not with me. Yeah, and it's spontaneous, and he wins, and she's going to go with him. Yeah, and so then it's almost like I guess I can be spontaneous. Right, you know, and so that then opens him up. He becomes vulnerable to being turned by. By by emotions and and feelings that yeah. it wouldn't have been before. So Nate says to him, "I know you're not. Gonna, I need to tell you because I'm right. obligated right. to. I know you're not going to go for it. But here's where Wangro is. He goes through that tunnel of light, and something comes over him, and he turns off the freeway. Now, we shot that scene." Tell like three times. Uh-huh. We completed the night shooting, and I looked at Bob, and he looked at me, and I said, "We don't have it." He said, "Yeah, I know." Went back into the second time, and it's it, it is only the what's what was in Bob's head yeah. played on his face that we knew we didn't get it the first and second time. We did it a third time, and we knew we had it. And were you telling him that? 
Oh, we're both talking about you it. You and like Bob? That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, that, like, yeah, absolutely. I need to, yeah, I need to see I, it. We didn't, I said, it's, not, it's, it's okay, but it's not really there. He says, yeah, I know. Oh, oh, yeah. Said, oh yeah, totally. And then we're going we're to do it again. I mean, he is a spectacular actor to, you know, to work with, obviously. Right. And, um, but it, you're saying the reason the character did that was because he had to do it. He, didn't, he had to do it because he lost his navigation. It's like a boat without a rudder. He lost his navigation by being vulnerable, by, 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 by letting her in. But and he should let her, should have let her in. I get it. Yeah, it, he, what he's saying is the truth. I mean, yeah. that, those these are the contradictions. They're so rich to me, and why I think this is kind of a universe because yeah. this is this is the contradictions that are in our life. They're both true. Right. It's not contradictory. You know. I mean, it really is that nothing he's after means anything if she's not with him. He said, "My life's you know, I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a needle starting at zero and going the other way." And that's what blank. he decided midway through the movie. I mean, like you, you know, like he was the guy that said, "You you can't don't stick with." You, Anything you can't leave in right. thirty seconds. Exactly, and he never would have. He never. He would after he meets her accidentally in yeah. the belt in the Broadway deli. Sure, and then uh, he goes home. They they have sex. They make love. He leaves a glass of water. Right. He folds a napkin around yeah. it the way you do in prison, where everything is kind of this Bonnaroo, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. And and he's going to go away, and he is going to just have the memory of her, and that's it. And he's never going to call her again. Right. Never going to happen. Except right. he's seeing everybody together yeah, in the Chinese the, restaurant. The empty chair moment. And and so he and so he weakens, and he calls her. Yeah. She says, "I thought it was only the one night. Not for me, was it?" She says. Yeah. yeah it's a it's strange turn. It's a strange it's a strange turn. Yeah. yeah. So now, have you been? Kind of uh, ruminating about these characters for you know what thirty years to, to do a book. Well, they they never they were alive before I wrote the movie and did the movie, and they're alive after I did the movie. It's a long time after the movie, though. Well, they never stopped being alive because they, um, the 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 invention is much greater than that slice of time that the movie sure. uh, occupies. Yeah. So the movie is just is a 1995 sliver. I mean, I know the characters alive. For me, I know what Neil McCauley was doing when he was 11, when he was institutionalized. But you knew that when you made the movie. Oh, totally. I, I have to know everything about the character. I have to know where they come from. I have to know why he is the way he is. I have to why he speaks the way he does. Why he moves. So, um, but do you do that with all your films then? Yes, and and uh, and I dive as deeply as I can into the authentic, you know, uh, milieu, the social milieu, and get with. If I'm going to do thief, I'm going to hang with thieves. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting about that movie. But yeah, I mean, but like with Ali, I mean, now yeah. in order, that guy's got a biography. But the but the the fictional movies, like even if you didn't write them, you do you build a backstory. Absolutely, especially it gets interesting when you try to do Mohicans in, in, in 1757. Hmm. You know, yeah. so how do you get the same? It's kind of like uh, what, what I aspire to is is kind of a cultural immersion, almost like a I don't know, like a British cultural anthropologist, yeah. where you really want to. You know, I have to be able to imagine I am this current person. This is my value system. This is how I come on to a girl. This is what I think about life, and um, and that's what's operative in big time and in, in, in heat. It's a different. It's a different situation when you when you when you're obviously doing a period film. Sure. Because you could do the period physical world, the wardrobe, the locations, everything else. You, I, for me, I've got to have period attitude. I've yeah. got to know what their values are. I've got to know what period psychology is. What's the psychology of the Iroquois in 1757? 
And how did you find that out? Uh, there is a there was a uh, spectacular Harvard historian named Parkman who in the eight, in the eighteen seventies did a version of oral history where he talked to very old people who, when they were very young, talked to their grandparents who lived through the summer of. 1757, lived through August of 1757, and related stories. That plus, um, there's nothing, we know nothing about the Mohicans, but we know all about the, the na- a neighboring tribe, the Mohawks, sure. who yeah. spoke a different language, yeah. but, but in the Six Nations of the Iroquois. So most of the, most of the cultural take and the psychological take is all Iroquois. So now, is it, I just talked to uh, Robert Eggers, you know, the, the guy who did the uh, Northman and Witch and uh, right. the Lighthouse. Yeah. He's also a very meticulous dude, and in the witch, he 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 made them construct the house uh, of the period, which was pre-colonial America, with only tools that were available at the time. Right. Do you go that deep? Yeah. 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 Cameron's cabin in the front of Mohicans. The crops are the real crops. Okay. We actually act crazy, but is it crazy though, or it's not it- crazy? It's great. I mean, well, why not do it if you can? Yeah. And we needed to grow the crops about seven weeks. So we found, and, and there were the actual <laughs> crops that they would have planted. Yeah. We found some hybrid seeds that are that were genetically engineered for mountainous environments. We yeah. had very short growing seasons. So we grew all of our corn in like seven or eight weeks or something. So that it's but you, the whole house yeah. was 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 just a real log cabin. We just built it. We built a fort for real. The fort was real. And and not, I mean, obviously it's going to look look correct, you know, in the camera. But I imagine that the the sort of uh, energy it creates for fantastic. you, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's it's there in every gesture right. of all the actors. Yeah. The the uh, you're bringing people who have not. Who they, they've read about and they've talked about their heritage, their history. They've never been in an environment where they could stand and they could look through about 270 degrees, and there's nothing that is not 18th century. I'm talking about I'm talking about the American Indians, sure, who are you know Native Americans who yeah. are who are on the show, yeah. And then for um, you know, and then like for for Daniel, uh, same thing. I mean, he trained for eight months, yeah, and so he could do everything that Hawkeye would have been able to do, and it culminated in one week in a uh, forest, you know, in a, a national forest in um, in Georgia, where if Daniel didn't trap it or shoot it, he didn't eat. Huh. And it so was really land navigation. I mean, well, that's all of his this thing, stuff. man, right? You know, yeah. he, he'll go deep. Yeah, but the the payoff of that is the authenticity. Sure. And it's why it's why sometimes, if you're lucky, these things sustain in memory, they sustain in culture, because there's a deep, truth-telling resonance to it that I believe audiences, I believe audiences are quite brilliant, and they know things they don't even know. There's a truth-telling resonance, I think, that stays with audience, and they stay emotionally hooked in for, they like the movie, they like the music, they like this, like that, but it's something deeper than that. It's a, it's a, it's a truth to it. Yeah. And that's what... A uh, human truth that, that, that yeah. transcends whatever... Is necessary. So that's why Eggers, I'm, you know, is you tap in. But yeah, I had a, I had my three little girl. I've I four daughters, but yeah. three of them were with me when we were shooting the yeah. cabin. And his, his daddy, don't do not burn down that cabin. Yeah, <laughs> says, honey, that's the story. Yeah, but you're the boss, Dad. You don't have to burn it down if you don't want to. We want to live here. You know. Yeah. Oh, they this loved was, it. They loved yeah. it. But I mean, going back, I mean, is this like, how long does it take you to prep? Because I know you know you've done a lot of stuff. 
but you make very specific choices about the films you do, and it must take forever. Um, yeah, but it's a great adventure. Sure, uh, that's the whole thing, right? Fabulous adventure. I'm driven by content and creating content. That's it. So uh, I'm not a journeyman director. Right. And uh, yeah, so on Mohicans, it was, you know, we were prepping for probably close to a year. For yeah. Ali, we prepped for seven, eight, nine months. We'll prep for 11 months on, on Ali, same thing. Yeah. And it was, and you could, the, the boldness of, and, and of, uh, that decision for Will to try and be Muhammad Ali is is awesome. Yeah, it is a you know, and uh, and you start analyzing uh, footage of Ali. Yeah, when he's particularly when he's when he's rapping some of his yeah uh, rhyming couplets and stuff. Yeah. And you see how complex the language is. Sometimes he has three different identities. Uh-huh. And he's himself, then he's Uncle Ninja and Uncle Rima's voice, then yeah. he's a different kind of voice. Yeah. And it's really complex stuff. So to, to really get that right takes takes quite a bit. He was great as Ali, I thought. He was terrific. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, he, he was Ali. And he, uh, and it, it wasn't until about the... By the way, he boxed every morning, five days a week, for probably nine to ten months. Yeah. And I had Angelo Dundee there. I had everybody. He's I could, still alive, right? Yeah. 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 Really bring in. How about Ali? And Ali was there all the time. Oh, yeah. And during the shooting he here. He must as have well. loved it. It, he did because it was like a time trip. One of his favorite things in life was his bus. You love driving around his bus. So yeah. We had yeah. Bus. And then I had, I had uh, when we were location scouting in 1984 for the Miami Vice pilot, the Fifth Street gym was still there, and we had videotaped it. And somebody reminded me, you know, I think in our storage, we have video of the actual Fifth Street gym, which had subsequently been torn down, and we did. So it's like a, you know, it's like time travel for him to be able uh, to walk. And in was the, he? In was he? Gym. How was his brain at that point? His brain was always good. He, it was, he, it was he, the uh, muscles. The Parkinson's yeah, yeah, yeah. affected his speech. Okay. And so people think that because you're speaking that way, perhaps you're. You have Alzheimer's, or you're, or or or, or slightly autistic, or yeah. something, and then the normal human reaction to that is to accept that it's kind of a bad feedback. And right. a lot of people with Parkinson's, because sure. people start regarding them a certain way, like they can't. But not understand. Ali. Yeah. Ali's mind was sharp. Yeah. So a lot mm. of the a lot of the movies go back to Chicago, and you're from Chicago, right? right? Now, in but, a, inner city Chicago, but you're not from a crime family. Enough of a crime family. <laughs> but, but there's a how dip- did you grow up? How did I grow up? Yeah, like what was the family uh, situation? What did the old man Lower doing? middle class, working class family, inner city. Yeah. Uh, directors from Chicago who lived in a, who grew up in the suburbs make comedies. Yeah. Directors from Chicago grew up in a city like Billy Friedkin or myself. We do not make comedies. It's an interesting thing about you and Friedkin because I was thinking about Live and Die in L.A. And I'm like, yeah. you, you know, it looks like he was watching some of your movies. <laughs> I don't know. You don't know. Uh, so, uh, grew up in the near north side. Yeah. Uh, then we moved further north. Went what, to was, what business was your family in? My father had a small independent like supermarket thing that eventually went out of business when they opened up a big jewel tea right next yeah. to him. Uh, my grandfather had a uh, had a small cab company, like one cab, two cabs. I drove a cab. I pretty much half worked my way through. Yeah. University. Yeah. Um, and uh, you got brothers and sisters? I got one. I have one brother. Yeah. Uh, my parents were, my dad was terrific. He died when, uh, he died too young at 56 when Oof. I was about 23. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, so it was... Jewish? Yeah. Yeah. Conservative? Uh, no. 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 My Just... father was... My father was progressive. My grandmother was very progressive. Oh, my yeah? grandmother lived through the Russian Revolution. Uh, my, uh, my father volunteered to uh, World War II, saw a lot of combat oh, yeah? in the Battle of the Bulge. He was 33 when he went in, and at huh. 33, he didn't have to go in. That's old to go in, uh, yeah. But he came to this country when he was 10 and felt uh, patriotic duty to, huh. to fight. Did you ever and, talk to him about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. He would talk about it? Yeah, he when when we went in the fifties when we went to movies we'd go to the movies at ten in the morning on Sunday. Yeah, because he couldn't be in crowds. They didn't have terms like PTSD. Yeah, you know, PTSD. Yeah, like that. but he he had it, huh? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He had a lot of a uh, lot of a lot of issues that came from uh, from the combat that he saw. He was wounded and then went then back went back on the front line and then huh. it became an MP. Wow. So was that your first movies experiences with your old man? Uh, Going to the movies? Those are my first movie experiences, yeah. but I had zero interest in, in cinema. I had no idea at all that I wanted to be but, a but film did, director. Right, but were movies landing with you? Were you like you know, with, um, a big part of your life? Or? Last the Mohicans landed with me when I was three or four and didn't realize it until <laughs> 1991. Yeah. I could not figure out what the hell to do Interesting. next. And then I said, wait a minute, I've had two things rattling around in my brain since I was three. One is this one is this tragedy of this girl falling off a cliff. I don't know where it comes from. And the second thing is this notion of, of these spectacular-looking Native Americans with British soldiers in red coat uniforms. And I don't know where they came from. I remember, you've been thinking about, you know, seeing the black and white, Last of the Mohicans. It wow. was made in 1936, and you were seeing it probably in 1946 huh. in the basement of a church near, near where we lived, around Hubble Park. And you tracked it. You figured it out, though. I said, yeah, well, well, and then I went to uh, Joe Roth and Roger Birnbaum at Fox, and I yeah. said, I got a crazy idea. There hasn't been a period movie in 10 years. Let's make Last of the Mohicans. They said, great idea. Let's do it. It was that difficult. <laughs> so when, uh, did you, when did you start taking an interest in movies? Uh, probably I took a, um, I was tortured about trying to figure out what to do with my life. You know, who should I be in this world? What were your options uh, in your mind? For in my 20s. And then... Uh, what were you considering? Everything. Yeah. Uh, I was an English lit major, but I took a lot of history courses, a lot of philosophy courses. I took geology courses. Yeah. I wanted to be a psychologist for about 11 minutes. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and I said, okay, I'm going to write. I'm going to be a novelist, uh, you know. Uh, and then I took a, a course in film history, taught by the first course in film history yeah. at University of Wisconsin. And I remember the exact moment I was walking down Bascom Hill, and it was in January, yeah. it was like freezing cold, but dry and beautiful. You know, every you see every star in the sky. And about 10 at night, it just, just hit me, you're going to make movies, this is what you're going to do. Huh. And so I'd just seen um, maybe Paps Joyless Street or something. Yeah. And um, this is what you're going to do. This is what, this is what, and it just hit me it's like a bolt of lightning. And uh, and it may have been something else as I was also, you know, Canada, Dr. Caligari. Oh, you yeah. Know, all yeah, of those. Yeah. It's fantastic cinema. And, um, and Eisenstein, who's still as relevant today as ever. And um, what, like Potemkin? Potemkin. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I'd read film form and film sense. Sure, you know, his and theory, film theory. When you say something like uh, he's relevant 
today to this day? What parts of, of Eisenstein? Well, we're talking about heat, dialectic. Okay, okay right. Okay. The dialectic, the collision of ideas. The language of film. The language of film or the language of film narrative, the, yeah. of the whole of the narrative and of the experience on every different level. And because that's exactly what, what heat is. Heat is all of these points of view crashing together into the end. And when you're with any one character, not only are you emotionally believe in what he wants and emotionally connected to him, you also see the world the way he sees the world. And on top of that, I made happen, uh, I made fate work for him as a function of his view of the way (laughs) life is. Right, yeah. And one of the fascinating characters is Shaherlis, who doesn't have a view. Right. And is kind of a postmodernist, and then just, he just But also a romantic. Kind of. He's a romantic, he's screwed up, he Obsessive. makes mistakes, and yeah. he slides, you know. Yeah. She does that blackjack dealer wave with her hand when she really should let him be captured because her life and her kid's life is in jeopardy yeah. if she doesn't. And then yeah. he's got a, he smiles and she just right. gives him a pass, Saves you know. Him. So when you decide to do that, you're an undergrad? I, I was yeah, and that was it. I I was my junior year, and uh, then right I started looking for how. To, okay, I don't know how sound gets on film. I know nothing about this. Yeah, what do you do? Go to film school. What film school? And um, there was no internet, of course. So you yeah. go to the library and look at the syllabus for sure. UCLA. Yeah, and, and you didn't want to go to UCLA. You didn't want to go to. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I probably would have been probably would have been a good place to go. But yeah, I was also or USC even. Yeah, it, 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 when I, you read the syllabus, it felt very dry and technical. Okay. Now, now Coppola also has said that who went to USC, yeah. that it was dry and technical. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I couldn't. Uh, there was there were only like three or four film schools in America back then. And, so where'd you uh, go? London. So you left. London Film School. Yeah, I was also staying out of Vietnam, so it wasn't. That was in a, uh, you were trying to stay out of Vietnam. I was staying out of Vietnam. Yeah. My, so was my brother, and my dad totally supported that. He thought anybody anybody who was a World War II veteran who wanted their kid to go to Vietnam had to be in a quartermaster corps. They had not seen combat. That was but, just, but, uh, how did, but he must have felt, uh, I mean, at what point, what, what year are we talking? He must have thought- 65. Oh, so we really didn't know politically what was happening. He just knew combat well, I was did bad. From '63, you yeah. started to you started to feel like this is a gigantic mistake, and yeah. it, it's uh, this is the wrong. So how did you stay out? Just by staying in college? I was stayed in college for two years, and then I had a. Uh, uh, I started writing post. <laughs> there was a draft board in Chicago. Yeah, and there was a. Um, and I get these form letters, and I'm a university student. I'm yeah. staying out. I was very active in the anti-war movement in yeah. Europe, and um, when you were uh, in London, politically active in those years, yeah. 66, 67. And uh, every three months, you'd get something for draft board, and there was a lady's name on the bottom. So I'd send her a postcard every five or six months, <laughs> saying, you know, something really profound, like it rains a lot in London. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something, <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. I did yeah. this for like two and a half years. One day, I get a letter back saying, I read in your in your file that you have asthma. If you can have a doctor say that you still have asthma, you know, you will, you you're, know, out. you're one Y, yeah. you know, and so I did, and that was, that was it. You did have asthma. Y, yeah. So in London, like, once you decide, because of a couple movies you saw, that this was your calling, you know, how do you set about modeling a, a vision for yourself? 
you make mistakes. It's what you do in film school. You yeah. go to film school and you make, and, and you sh- I believe that people should go to film school with a great liberal arts education, which mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to have. And then you go and you make films that are totally embarrassing in, in and film awful. School. Like short films, you mean? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's symbolic. And you make all those mistakes early on and yeah. you take all those shots. When you left with a liberal arts education, I mean, what were the stories that, that moved you the most that were kind of templates for your way of thinking in terms of story? Uh, how to do... Well, first of all, I became very interested in national liberation front movements that were going on in Angola and Mozambique. Uh-huh. In, my, in film school in London, a third of... The students were Americans who were not going to go to Vietnam. Then there were South Africans who, if they got sent back to South Africa, were going directly to jail. Yeah. There were Portuguese because in 65, the war in Angola was bigger than the war in Vietnam. Yeah. Until Salazar died in 74. So, uh, you know, I, I did I did some uh, film work uh, during the end of the May-June 68 in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the, you know, that's, so we were thinking about yeah. doing that, and then uh, short film, that kind of thing. I started thinking about change. Well, so, I mean, the, the making, you know, this is, this inflamed everybody. I yeah. mean, this part of the rapport I had with Ali is that what made him crazy on the 6 o'clock news in 19, I mean, violently crazy on the news in 67 on a Tuesday night made me crazy at the same time. I, he was a one year older than me. Yeah. And so there was another, and he had a very sophisticated understanding of global struggle because uh, Muhammad Speaks, the Nation of Islam newspaper, the center part of that was all about third world struggles. Yeah. Back, back in 64, 65, 66. So you saw your films, so were you thinking about a, a, a career in movies or were you thinking about doing political movies? I was thinking about a career in movies and the subject matter I was taken with was political given given the times. Right. Okay? And the polarization, which was radical. And what were some of the movies or examples of that that you enjoyed? Uh Wild Bunch was massively impressive. 67. Oh I just watched that again. Wow. So good. It's so good. And take a look take a what take a look at what films were nominated in 1967. It's like a hit list of about 10 films. It's, yeah. it's unbelievably, you know, rich, prolific. You know what's the most, what's amazing that it that that always stands out with me when I watch that movie which I've done several times cuz I like Peck and Paw is those kids with that scorpion and those ants at the beginning. Right. That it's the whole movie. It's the whole movie. It's the whole movie. The whole movie. It's like it just blows me away every time. So who are you working with over there in London? I've talked to some guys. You knew Ridley Scott? I knew Ridley. Yeah. I knew Ridley briefly. Yeah. You know. And who else is coming up with you? Anybody? Michael Lay, uh, yeah. a lot of guys who I went to film school with with went to work in World in Action, which mm-hmm. was a uh uh, investigative journalists on ITV, which made 60 Minutes look like Ding Dong School. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, these guys were like, you know, parachuting in to interview Regis Debray, this kind of stuff. Oh, no shit. Did you do any work with that? Did uh, you no, do any jobs? I just knew a lot of them. Yeah. But when I was doing um, some early research on um, on triads in Hong Kong, uh, my, one of my closest friends, uh, a guy named Gavin McFadgen, who set up the Frontline Club in, in, in London later years, um, he and I did all that together, and we were able to really penetrate into 
uh, deep into triads and also some aspects of the drug trade in the Golden Triangle, oh, researching something in around 1980, uh, 79 and 80. And it's because of his investigative journalism techniques that that was the real inroad into it. Um, Michael, Michael, Michael Apted came out of that background. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was yeah, yeah. world in action, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a whole bunch of people. Uh, I, did, did some of that international crime come into this one, into the novel, the new one? Absolutely. So, yeah. so it's all in there, in the uh, back of your head. And you kind it's of all it. in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, it, and then it keeps um, it keeps on keeping on. <laughs> is that, is, do you connect it through Vietnam, through the, uh, through the Hannah character? I connect it to Vietnam... Why? Because we tried to do uh, Way, 1968, yeah. the Mark Bowden, the fabulous Mark Bowden book, and we came very, very close to doing it at FX with, uh-huh. with uh, a fantastic executive there, John Langraff. Yeah, I know that guy. Right I'm, at, I'm working with him now. Okay. I mean, I just, I just sold, he's a great guy, smart great. guy. Really smart. Yeah. And um, we were... We were coming to the point of a decision just at the time that Disney was doing the takeover and it became impossible to go forward with it. Oh, okay. All right. But in the book, like, I know, like, uh, Pacino's character, Hannah, is a vet, right? Yeah. And, and I put yeah. him in, six, I put him you right put him in there. the Battle of Way of 1968. Yeah, right there, yeah. right there. All right. So when, what was your first job in the films? My first job that I got, um, I worked in London for a while, had a small, product, tiny production company. Okay. We made some commercials. So you started a business in London? Start, yeah, well, on five guineas, yeah. uh, five pounds, five shillings. You yeah, know, it's, like, yeah. it's like the Mel Brook thing. You put your head on a rock, look up in the sky, and say, <laughs> I am a production company. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's how we started. So. <laughs> yeah. And then you went back. commercials? Yeah, we made them commercials yeah. and shorts and tried to get a screenplay written on something that happened in Sri Lanka. Were uh, commercials helpful, technique-wise? And Yeah, but it was, yes. We made, I, made, I made three, four, three, four commercials. Okay. You know, one of them, um, you know, had a brand's hatch with a, you know, a GT40, which yeah. was a lot of fun. Uh, and then well, my dad died in 69 and went back to Chicago and uh, set up a little production company there and did the same thing and then moved out to the coast. In about 70, 71. Wow. So films really kind of happening then, independent film in a way, or, or at uh, least independent thinkers. I, I, prob- I probably got her just in time for all the youth movies right. after Easy Rider, yep. all the bad youth movies yep. to flop. Right. So, <laughs> sure. All the, I picked that moment in time to arrive. The Corman ripoffs, you know, the ones that- All were, of the- right, all, Yeah. The I ones mean, he was churning whole, out after Easy Rider, but then there was a couple of good movies, right? A couple of good ones. Yeah. When all the bad ones came out, I showed up and tried <laughs> to get started. Hey, <laughs> what'd you do? Yeah. And um, and meanwhile, I'd worked for a year at 20th Century Fox in in London in a, in a production job, uh, physical production, uh-huh. which was great, and uh, worked with some really terrific people. And so then, uh, basically, nothing. I tried to write, and uh, television or movies, pardon? Movies or television? I was trying to write movies. Yeah. And uh, and a, and then a guy named Bob Lewin, who was a story editor on a on a series that was just beginning called mm. Starsky and Hutch, read, yeah. some, read some of it. Yeah. And I wound up getting a gig writing an episode, which then became the first episode. Then I wrote about three or four of the early ones. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the series was created by Bill Blinn. Yeah. And um, and yeah. Uh, then I, I became a kind of a sought-after television writer very quickly. Okay. Okay. And yeah. The, and the plan was to 
this is what inner city Chicago, I guess, was pure extortion. Yeah. Like, make myself <laughs> valuable, and I won't write it if I can't also direct it. Oh, okay. So that was the way he got in there. And that, that became the Jericho Mile, which was a movie of the week that did very well. It won a, I won a DGA award and an Emmy that year, and it was released theatrically in Europe. It uh, did well? did really well, yeah. So that was your first feature? That was the first. It was a movie of the week in the States. There was a feature in, in foreign. So I imagine all the TV writing must have helped you, you know, kind of TV writing structure. F- totally. You're, that's, that's a very great, it's a great question. It's a really valuable insight. I, I learned structure from Bob Lewin and Liam O'Brien. Uh-huh. Liam O'Brien ran, uh, and a guy named Ed Waters ran Police Story. Yeah. Where Joe Wambaugh executive yeah, produced. Yeah, I remember that. And every episode was based on, this relates to Heat in a Big Way, every yeah. episode was based on a real event, and you went and you spent time with the police officer who was telling you what happened when he was trying to work the freeway sniper who right. shot a Chinese girl in the head, and she was um, brain dead. But at three in the morning, he was so tortured by his imminent divorce that he'd go and he'd talk to her, even though she couldn't hear him. And you got these human stories that were so deep. Wow. And, um, Did he do The Onion Field? Was that one? Yeah, yeah. I just watched that recently. That's Lombo. Yeah, yeah, it's got some of that. You can feel that in there. Yeah. And so, but, th- these, were, but these were stories that would be related to me by the cop who yeah. lived through it. Right. And you'd have to probe and get some of this out of him. Lewin, who read some of my dialogue, said, you know, your dialogue, you would have got a great ear for dialogue and you would not know what a story was if it ran you over. Right. So I'm going to tell you what a story I'm going to tell you, I'm going to teach you what a story is. You yeah. Know? And I still use the same kind of structural understanding. What is it? What did, how telling. do you lay it out in a one-liner? Lay it out on one piece of paper. What was his pitch? How do you, how do you explain story to you? How do you explain story? Uh if you want to travel from here to Seattle, you know you're going to Seattle. What's yeah. the most exciting way to get to Seattle? <laughs> <laughs> That's called story. <laughs> you know? And 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 what? And around two thirds of the way there, you, you make a strange decision well, two, where you don't. But know. the whole point is to yeah. figure it out when it's on one piece of yeah, paper. I get you know? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you did the you did that TV work and 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 Thief was the first one that you. Well, Jericho Mile was the first dramatic sure. thing I directed. Okay. And then, um, and then uh, by that point, I had written Thief, and so then Thief was the, my first feature film. And I got to tell you, I talked to James Kahn, You yeah. know, I did an interview with him. Okay, and he's like, he's he's a one of a kind person, and absolutely, and he's a real ball buster. But like, I watched all his shit because I wanted to be loaded up, and out of his whole life, that's the movie. That's his movie. That's the one he loves. Well, really, that's yeah. great to hear. Yeah, he, that's uh, the one where he's like the one, the best one I did is that movie. He's pretty good as Sonny. I mean, you know what's funny? I mean, you know like, what I got out of him about Sonny that I never knew? He said that when he shot the first scene that they did for The Godfather with, with him as Sonny was that scene in the office where he speaks out of turn with Salazzo. Right. Remember with the meeting? Yeah. And he get his he says something and his dad gets pissed off at him. He said we shot that the day, first day. That was the first thing we did, and I didn't know who Sonny was. And then he said, but I was hanging around with Don Rickles for some reason. He was running around with Don Rickles, and he's like, the ball buster. That's who Sonny is. Right. So the so the 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 gearbox, the drive shaft of Sonny was Don Rickles. That makes total sense. It does, right? That makes complete sense. It's yeah. crazy. 
So now, what was the relationship that you had, you know, in in researching? Because Thief, I watched again. It was hard to find for a while, but then it showed up on Criterion for a while. There's something you have around, you made some decisions, because I watched the first episode of Tokyo Vice as well yesterday. You know, in my recollection, there's a tone you create through light, through music, through close-ups, but there's, and lighting, it's specifically yours, and it happens immediately. And, And you know that. So... How do you evolve that? I mean, what what decisions were you making? What were you going up against, you know, with the films you had seen to create this thing that is your vision? Um, I don't think of it from an external point of view. Okay. At all. I'm not, I'm yeah. not you know, I just focused in on what I want to do. And that mission objective is different for, for you know, from for every film. Sure. But there's certain things that are similar to my objective is to, is to, is to immerse you so deeply in it that you are experiencing something I experience when I'm sitting there and I don't want the movie to end. I'm worried that I'm halfway through and it's going to end soon. Don't end, movie. You know, almost yeah. that, ki- that kind of immersion. That's my ambition regardless of what the, of what the story is. So then that means a whole number that, that then uh, generates a lot of different, you know, uh, avenues of, of endeavor. And one is to use all the... All aspects of the medium and use it very aggressively. Mm-hmm. And to uh, the last thing I'd ever want to do would be do film theater. Uh, just not zero interest in that. And how do I make this more experiential? What, what do you mean film theater? Well, where the you know where the actors are there, they're yeah. talking dialogue, right. and the camera just happens to be sure. recording it. Okay, got yeah. it. So you okay? So you're going to use sight so and I sound. I want to be experiential. I want to be experiential and 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 to be more as fluid as I could be and. And to have all the formal elements serve that purpose uh, as radically as possible, and um, you know, so that starts with knowing everything you can possibly know and having real people around as much as you can. So Thief is very much based on a guy named John Santucci who plays uh, uh, who plays a cop in the in Thief. Yeah, and um, and there's a tall blonde cop whose name is Charlie Adams. Yeah. Who's in there? Who's playing? Who beats up Jimmy Kahn when they interrogate him? Yeah. Char- Charlie killed the real Neil McCauley from Heat. From Heat in 1963. Okay. And that coffee shop scene kind of happened at the Belden Deli in okay. Chicago on Clark Street. So these were the cops, and we're the cops. And Santucci's a thief. The thief's based on. So we didn't have any props. We had all John's burglary gear. Yeah. And then I did Crime Story, and I made him a series regular, and he brought his whole world into a lot the, of the movie with the cops. Him. Oh yeah, but yeah. It was, so there are a lot of thieves playing cops and cops playing thieves all all through all through. Oh yeah, thief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we and had, what about Farina? He played one of the uh, bad guys. Dennis was Charlie Adamson, the tall blonde guy. Yeah. Dennis was Charlie's partner. Okay. And Dennis, Dennis was rough. I yeah. mean, his, he was a. And, uh, and then after Thief, yeah. he, he said, you know, he really, I want to take up acting. So he went to the Goodman Theater. Then he, then he hooked up with Steppenwolf. And then he hooked up with Billy Peterson's Remain Theater. All that in that great, you know, golden age of theater in Chicago sure. in the 80s. Yeah. And he became an actor. And then I popped him into crimes, into, uh, in, I mean, into uh, Miami Vice in a couple sure. episodes. Sure, yeah. And then we did, and he became the lead in Crime Story. Yeah, he's great. He's great. He's great. He, uh, he's one of my closest friends. He died in 2014. We were. I'm uh, sorry. 
No, it's horrible. Yeah. And he's still he's still alive, you know. Yeah. But we were um and we did luck together and uh, he was a great guy. I'm sorry. Jesus. Yeah. Wait, how did what happened? He had a he, I think I think he had a blood clot in his arm. Oh. And it just ran into his heart and he fell down and that was they it. called nine one one and he died. He was in Scottsdale. Ugh. Terrible. And we were shooting on uh, in Central in Hong Kong on Black Hat, and half my crew, my crews, most of my crew's been with me for twenty years. So everyone knew him. Everybody knew. We just stopped. I just right in the middle of the shoot. I just we just stopped, pulled a plug, you know. Oh Jesus. So anyway, so so thief. So this was like because in, in all these things you're talking about, the sensory experience, the immersive experience, you know, using tangerine right. dream music. And they're like, but they're, the lighting and, you know, I mean, the attention you paid to everything, even clothing became part of the fabric of the film. You, you know, there, there are some scenes like in Manhunter as well, similar. Like there are certain movies I see as more, you know, signature where I can immediately identify the style. It seems like some movies when I'm thinking like Thief. Manhunter, you know, probably Miami Vice, you know, Collateral, where, you know, you immediately are in, like, within a frame, it's like, this is a Michael Mann movie. Now, like, when you're doing something like, uh, like, uh, 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 Mohicans, do you, you have to, is there a shift you have to make, or you just apply it to the story? I'm not, Same no, I'm not self-conscious about any of it. Okay. I mean, it, it's it so, so, to me, it's like, what kind of light do I want? I start looking at paintings for the period. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, how do I visualize, uh, you know, first of all, everything's lit by candle, uh, yeah. or if we're doing public enemies, you know, what kind of light sources? Did they have then? Where they have yeah. them? Well, they have very dim bulbs, so if you walk yeah. down the street, there's a pool of light, yeah. and then it's dark, then yeah. another pool. And um, uh, so it's it has to be different. I'm right, not self-conscious right. about, oh, wait a minute, this isn't my signature, you know. I don't, no, no, I, don't I, I get it, I get stuff. it. It's just, it's just, yeah. it's like anybody who's dug into their, per, you have a, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not accusing you of, of, of hacking yourself, but but your vision is is deep enough to where it, it sort of manifests, and no one else really does it, you know, unless they're ripping well, you thanks. off. thanks, I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in Thief, what when you look back at that movie, what what do you think were your biggest successes in 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 putting that thing together? Since um, it was your first film, like that really stuck with you, where you were like, "Holy shit, this is this is it." Then I got the I got, there's a one dialogue scene between James Conn and Tuesday Weld in the, the diner. diner. Oh, that's, that's ten minutes. Yeah, it's a whole reel back yeah. when there were reels. Yeah, and and that that. Could work that there was a you know I thought to myself wow I'm gonna tell, what if I told this whole story and yeah. he told all his life how do I get all these things about his life into this I yeah thought, what if he just sits down and tells her how do I make that happen you know right and as a writer I was thinking these things and that was the that, he had the little vision board too right the little the postcard yeah he's with got the, his yeah, montage yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I had I had spent significant time by this point in Folsom so I knew the way these guys. Thought and right. I, I knew the power yeah. of the human intellect in captivity. Yeah, uh, with people who have relatively strong egos. Yeah, and and the confinement makes them more intellectually aggressive. So the um, kinds of questions I was asked shooting the Jericho shooting the Jericho Mile in Folsom. Yeah, were were wild. I mean, I had convicts who. Um, I had one guy who I said I wanted, you know, I was casting, and one guy that wanted to be in the f film, uh, yeah. huge bodybuilder, uh, 
I want you. I want to handle the parts. I said, man, I can't be in your film. And I said, why not? He said, because. If I was in your film, I would allow, I'd be allowing you to appropriate the surplus value of my bad karma. And he wasn't kidding. He had read Marx and Engels, and uh-huh. he was also Buddhist. And, <laughs> yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, yeah. Yeah, really, okay. So, yeah. It made sense, though. There's poetry to it, right? Yeah, there's poetry to it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, and there, there's, there's a fantastic poet, a poet who's, who's, who's uh, still alive. His name is Spoon Jackson. Uh-huh. Who, who wrote a, a poem that's one of my favorite poems of all time. It says, you know, realness eats raw meat. It does not waver. Yeah. I mean, it's like this really tough oh, I'm gonna perspective, that yeah, philosophical yeah. perspective that you that you start to have, I think, if you're incarcerated. And you're, what is, why am I still here? Why don't I just end this? You know, well, what is existence? What's time? What's life? These guys ask themselves these profound questions, and you use those guys in a, uh, in a lot of movies. I mean, that you use an ex-con character, the ex-con and character, then, and, and you know that's that there at the core of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the core of it, I mean, I'm sure it's probably there too in Heat. It's the same questions sure. I, I ask myself. You know, how ought I, how ought I, how ought I to live? What is you know, it's the same question we're all asking ourselves. I know. Yes. I, I I wrote on a post-it today because of like of where I'm at in my life, and I just talked to. Uh, Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, yeah. who's still skateboarding at 53. I know. I saw, I just saw, saw, the, doc- I just saw the documentary. I talked to him today. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking to you. And what I wrote down from Heat was Sizemore saying, for me, the action is, is the, the juice. juice. Yeah. That's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there's got to be more than that. But it's true. That's the, and that's the guy you've got as the family man. Mr. In family values, right. Yeah. But his his family, your family, he would hold as a hostage. Sure, sure. But the action is but, the juice. He's the guy that could have, but he's the one guy that like took care of everything so he could leave. But he didn't get to leave. He didn't leave. But yeah. he, also, he also has pointed that he picks up as oh, body right. armor yes. a little kid. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. true. They, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Obviously, it's, it's yeah. quite intentional. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I'll go wherever you go to De Niro, but I'll take that kid <laughs> to yeah. protect myself. Yeah. That's got nothing to do with this family. Yeah, this thing exactly. Huh. Yeah. So when you do, uh, like I like I said, I watch Manhunter too. Now these leading guys, these guys you seem to get right at their peak. Like Con, amazing. Peterson was amazing. Yeah. And interesting, interesting actor. Right, Billy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that was. Yeah, uh, he's a bartender and thief, by the way. Oh, okay. When, <laughs> when Jimmy Conn rips Tuesday Weld out of the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's there. He throws huh? in a car. He's the Billy Peters is the bartender that he pushes out of the way. Yeah. So these are he's yeah. a Chicago guy. So you knew him since yeah. from back. You saw him do theater, probably. Oh uh, no, I didn't. Never I did, just huh? cast him and cast him in 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 thief and. Now, when you do something like The Insider, you just you all you're thinking about is that story. Totally. Yeah. And and how lethal these forces are, truly lethal and and dramatic, and how do you represent it with people t- talking in rooms? Uh-huh. Uh huh. For two hours and forty five minutes. Great and, movie. And um, you know, and as I knew, Lowell Bergman, you know, was a was a was a you know, was a friend when this was happening. We were developing something else. It was this, we were developing a, something on an arms merchant named yeah. Sarkis Sarkeesian. Mm-hmm. And while this was going on to Lowell, and I was one of a half dozen people he talked to, you know, I knew all about the tobacco thing. Yeah. He'd say, "You never guess what happened to me today." Don Hewitt walked by like I didn't exist, and you know, and and oh, uh, when he was being. Uh, uh, 
ostracized, ostracized yeah. at sixty minutes, yeah. and then um, and then I saw the 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 expurgated version of the show uh-huh. of of his ep- of about Jeffrey Wygand, yeah. and I, I called Lowell afterwards, and we started talking. I said, you know, forget Sarkis, Sarkis, what you're living through, defending a guy that you don't particularly like who's doing what he's doing for all the wrong reasons, which makes it a p- more pure act yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a Kantian sense of that it's your actions that count, not your intention. Right. And so it's the purest form of the act because he's not motivated for any good reason, yeah. and he's not very pleasant. Yeah. And you don't like him, and you're putting everything on the line to defend him. Yeah. I, to me, that was the That's the story. That's the, new, that's the story. And that's yeah. uh, and and also revealing that 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 kind of that corporate soulless corporate power, right? Right. Now the, the explanation of of, of <laughs> explanation of, of tortious interference. And Mike Wallace says, "You mean the truer it is, the worse it gets." And she's absolutely the truer it is, the worse it gets. <laughs> <laughs> but that but also like it's interesting because there is sort of a through line. You know, to to you know where you were politically when you were younger. I mean, that's an important movie. That's an important struggle. Yeah, Russ- and, it, and it is with the, it is with the real old Bergman too. You know. Yeah. Uh, what do you? How do you choose these movies that you do? Like, I mean, like how does like Collateral? What was that? What where would that come from? The collateral came from. from the, 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 do I choose them or do they choose me? That's yeah. interesting. Okay. You know. Okay. Collateral came from having done uh, Last of the Mohicans. And uh, you know, uh, Last of the Hicans, yeah. Insider, yeah. and Ali, and they're all massive pictures physically, which I love. That you know, but in terms of their huge stories with a lots of uh, moving parts, they're very symphonic mm. and orchestral, and you really have to get all right. And so the notion of doing a movie that took place in one night. That was like a gem. It's a, you know, it's all about the refractions where you have these two characters and each is the agent of the other's realization. Yeah. Um, uh, Jamie Foxx's character gets liberated from his J. Alfred Prufrock stories he's telling himself mm, right. by what, you know, this killer's talking about. And then towards the end of it, uh, you know, uh, Jamie Foxx's character uh becomes the agent of actually landing something on Tom Cruise that uh, some standard parts of human beings are missing in you and really you know yeah and uh, so anyway so that kind of like a gem like yeah thing was very very attractive to me so then I didn't I decided not to do aviator which was yet another big which uh, Scorsese ended and, up doing? And I went to, I, I said, okay, if, if there's, if there's two, one of two directors will do it, you know, I'll, then I'll produce it and they'll do it. Otherwise, I'll just hold on to it. And so I went to Marty. Interesting. So you, like, what was it about Aviator? It's the same story. It, to me, it was the same story as Ali. It's a, it's, it's a story about a man struck The whole, if you said, what is this, what is the central conflict and in 25 words or less, and you're only allowed to say one thing. Yeah. You know, and in Ali, it, it, it's a man struggling with himself. Yeah. And, and with, with you, what John Logan, who's a fantastic writer, and I invented for how to tell that story was not some long linear biopic, but that it's Howard Hughes fighting his own mental illness. That's the villain. That's the antagonist is his mental illness. And in the end, his mental illness wins. And in Ali, it's who shall I be? 
Mm. Who should I make myself into in this world? Because I represent so much to black Americans, and I, then he comes through, and I also represent so much to everybody rising up from below. Mm. That's why it ends with the rumble in the jungle. Right. And, uh, and you know, and so it's, it's you know, the function of rep- of representing something and being motivational, that's something Ali was always conscious of and wanted to design it. And he was on a voyage of discovery. Yeah. And a brilliant, brilliant guy. So with, with the aviator, what, you chose not to do it because you felt like you had made a similar I felt, movie? I couldn't figure out why it felt to me like it, like it was just, I'm telling the same story. Okay. And um, how do you think Scorsese I could, did? I owned it and control. I basically could, I controlled it. Yeah. I was developing it with Leo, and I controlled it. And, yeah. I, and I, I remember we have we're having a Christmas Eve party at my house as uh, as talking Leonardo and you know and um, and I, I was you know I should go do it now. You know, there's something that was holding me back. Uh, and, and how so, do you feel Scorsese did with it? I did great. Yeah. Yeah, I really did great. Is that where that relationship began with him and Leo? Or was that after Gangs in New York? I can't remember. Was I it what? Was it be, is that where the relationship with him and Leonardo started? Because um, I can't remember when Gangs in New York was made. I just know he's done several movies with Leonardo. No, he's done several movies yeah. with him. No, I think their relationship precedes it. Oh, it precedes yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. So, like, with Collateral, you were working with, was that the- was, By the way, we're shooting, both movies went at exactly the same time. Okay, okay. And what with with Collateral, they, I, th- I thought it was interesting, like, in sense of how you captured Los Angeles in Heat, how you, and then how you captured it in Collateral, and also, like, how you made uh, Chicago a character in, in, in Thief, that, you know, these, you must think these through pretty, pretty thoroughly in terms of how you're going to represent the city. We did three months of research and development on camera systems to be able to see into the night. For collateral? So, for collateral. So collateral is the first photo reel uh, film shot on high def. Okay. With with cameras that today are like you know primitive, like Stone Age cameras. Right, they're like your but phone. Like, <laughs> yeah, like the Sony F900. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and we were able to, because you know how it is in L.A. In the uh, when the you know marine layer comes in and the sodium vapor light yeah. bounces off those low hanging clouds and yeah. illuminates everything. You can't see that on film, mm. motion picture film. You right. can't see it, and you can't take it, and you're not going to have any depth of field. And so the only way you could do that, I, I started using um, some high shooting some high def pieces in Ali. Uh-huh. And I was stunned by one scene in particular that we shot yeah. um, during the right after Martin Luther King gets assassinated and the riots breaking out in Chicago. Yep. And uh, it was a flat, truth-telling style that the scene had that made sense, kind of ultra real, really okay. ultra real. So you, so you invited that. You, you liked the definition you got. I liked that. that, and then I, but I wanted to use that technology to to be able to see into the night. Okay. So it felt like you know late afternoon in Northern Europe or something where you're, but it's night all yeah. night and you know, so we we developed a whole bunch of techniques for being able to shoot it. But then for the first three weeks I'm shooting collateral. There was no when we did tests and you send a scene to the lab, you get a film out, and it's all magenta. Same piece of film the next day, it's all cyan. Huh. 
And so I used to have these nightmares that this is all conceptual art. It only exists in my memory. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's real. I have no I have no movie here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you figured it out. You no, know, it was it was okay. We were yeah. able to make it work. Okay. Right? Because it's a, it's definitely a different LA, you know, like the things that have changed in the city between heat and now, or between heat and collateral, were sort of like a, a lot. Because I wasn't LA like downtown starting to turn around, wasn't it? On- downtown was starting to turn around, but but in 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 heat, well in heat and also in collateral, you know, when you, I mean, in advance of heat, I was out there usually one night a week on the weekend with a guy who was a. Uh, commander at LAPD, he was in plain clothes, and we would just answer radio calls till about two, three in the morning huh. for six months, and that's how I really learned the city. And so that brings you into the Caribbean section of South Central. That brings you into you know Samoan areas of San Pedro. You know into yeah, uh, you know, bars and discos that are that are every, everybody's from Sinaloa. You uh-huh. know? I mean, it's so you really. You know, you're outside this self-imposed entertainment industry ghetto, right? Into, into the, the real in, LA, you which know? is very uh, fragmented and spread out. It's very fragmented and spread out. It's right. It's virtual. You have to travel to these places. Right. What uh, compels you to do public enemies? But to make the world in nineteen, the world in nineteen thirty, thirty three, thirty four. Yeah. You always just wanted to do it, and. Um, well, I knew a lot about it because I used to live a couple of blocks from the Biograph where, where, where Dillinger, Dillinger got shot. shot. Yeah, yeah. And so much of Chicago is is the same. Yeah, yeah. And um, and what the world was, and it, it's and the more I read the the uh, the nonfiction book, Public Enemies, I realized this was a uh, you know, Coover was an evil genius. This was a, such a turning point in history that it became very very dramatic. The first uh, interstate. True interstate, the Lincoln Highway, yeah. <clears throat> dates to 1926 or 1927 or 1933. The first reliable V8 engine, which means you can travel all these highways endlessly, is the f- you know is the flat Ford Flathead V8. It's 1933, 1934, and here's this guy gets out of prison after being isolated for 11 years, and it's not like he's got TV or the internet. I mean, it's yeah. completely isolated. Within three four weeks, he is living in the most current neighborhood in Chicago. He knows everything about everything, and there's just some spe- and he keeps and no one can lay a glove on him. He's grabbing more headlines than a president of the United States nationally, and there's no end game. Yeah, right. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> and you like that. And then so much of it was was tactile for us. We were able to get so close to it. We. Uh, I said, little Bohemia, where that big shootout happens, that can't still be around. Just call up, and sure enough, it's still around. Well, have they remodeled <laughs> yeah. it? No, they haven't remodeled it. Wow. What about his room? Totally unchanged, and they left the bullet holes in the wall. No shit. Well, let's go shoot there. Yeah. And they said, well, it's going to be very expensive to rent this. Uh, how much? Oh, about, oh maybe $2,000 a week. You know. <laughs> Let me look into it. So we were, <laughs> but then, then the then the prize was they had one his suitcase. They still had Dillinger's suitcase with his clothes. Who in did? The little Bohemian Lodge. That's crazy. And we bonded it and sent it, and so Johnny was able to put on his underwear and his pants. Get the fuck really? really, really. And you don't know. And when you want to know something about another guy, another character, what kind of socks does he buy? What 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 does he buy? Something with a little pattern. Solid socks, argyles, you know, that's what tells you about somebody. You got if you're all the a guy, answers. you know about another guy. You, you know? got all the answers. 
lot of the answers about wow. it. Wow. That's crazy. And the Miami Vice movie. Now, you like, I, I guess I was misinformed. Now, what you didn't have anything to do, the TV show was was that it wasn't created by you or no what? i didn't create it the creator is the guy who wrote it yeah tony yurkovich created yeah. my Miami okay. vice it was called gold coast yeah and i talked with tony we changed the title to miami vice and you were just a producer on it originally? i was executive i was executive producer but that's becoming kind of like the executive director sure because we do we did 22 hours a season and um and then tony was on it for about the first 16 episodes okay and then, uh, so I was, you know, casting it and hiring yeah. the directors and You're doing ca- the music and picking locations and basically bringing my feature film crew into TV. And and TV was a very moribund medium at that moment in time. It was very conventional, and it had an inferiority complex. And why should it have? Why should it not just be one hour of cinematic? Sure. The same way as I'd shoot. So a you movie. brought the immersive element. More than that, just you know, I just we're gonna make we're gonna make a one hour movie the same way we'd make a two hour movie and keep doing it that way until somebody makes a stop. And no one did. No one did. And uh, so, you know, we were the first stereo show and yeah. you know, breaking new music and um, before FM in some cases. Sure. And uh, and the, and so the movie was sort of a, an homage to, <laughs> to no, a the movie, reminder? No, the, the movie was, 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 the movie was, was you know, uh, you know uh, extend, project what Miami Vice would be now okay. if you're doing it. You oh, know, good. in 2004, yeah. right, 2006. Right. And, and not an homage. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I, other people may have been more satisfied with it being homage. I wouldn't have been interested in doing it. Sure. As I wanted, to, I was, I was taken with, by then I knew much more about the pathology of deep undercover, serious. I knew a lot, I know a lot of guys who do unbelievable stuff in DEA, and particularly the DEA Special Operations Division, yeah. which does narco-terrorism yeah. and, and pulling off wild stuff like Victor Boot and these other people get apprehended when those operations are unbelievably complex. And the undercover work they do, where they convince a Manjur Al-Qasar or Victor Boot that yeah. they really are buying, that they really are, 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 are the FARC, and they really want to buy arms. And Victor Boot has access to the whole FSB database when yeah. he wants to run. You want to buy something from me? I'll find, I'll investigate you. Yeah. And they managed to pull off these unbelievable operations. And But what there's a pathology to some of these guys where they go so deep undercover, the fabricated identity becomes the more vivid than their own identity. That's scary, yeah. They have romances that they shouldn't be having. Sure. They start, you know, it starts to become, who said which way is up. Donnie Brasco was good. Kind of Donnie Brasco. That was pretty good with that. But I've talked to a lot of guys who lived through that for real. I knew one guy in particular who, who did not end well for mm. him. Uh, so so that was where, that's, that's what's happening to Crockett, you know. Right. And then it was supposed to, it's supposed to end the whole ending was a bit different. It was supposed to happen in Ciudad Leste, in, mm. the, in the, the three boy, you know, the triple frontier, where Paraguay, Bol- uh, where Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina meet. It's a yeah. free trade zone, yeah, with um, Syrian and Taiwanese uh, and and South American 
uh, very, very sophisticated transnational organized criminal yeah. operations uh, operate basically free, freely. Right. And that's where you wanted to end it? And that's where I, that's where I wanted to end it. We wanted to be shooting there for about three days. But that place plays a major role in, in, the, uh, book? in the book. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You're fascinated with that place. I was fascinated with, yeah, because it's crazy. I mean, it's. I had an assistant who was... Uh, Taiwanese, she was getting her, her master's, business master's at London School of Economics, spoke like five languages, and was coming back to, to go join the family business, which was counterfeiting software. And um, that's what they did. Yeah. And a huge operation. Wow. And um, So, so that's, a, that's a big part of the new novel. That's one big part of it. Yeah. It also moves into uh, Southeast Asia. So Chris Chihurlis evolves. The novel begins... One day after the end of the movie. Okay. And uh, Chris Scherholz is wounded. He's the last survivor. He's half delirious yeah. on drugs. Yeah. Nate's trying. Nate John Voigt's trying to get him out. And uh, he, he comes. He becomes aware that Charlene betrayed him, mm. and that Neil's dead. Yeah. And he's got to get out of L.A. And then it jumps back to 1988 when. Uh, Neil's alive, obviously, and the Val Kilmer character and that whole crew are going to burglarize a bank vault at night. Hannah happens to be a cop in a quasi-corrupt Chicago police department chasing a home invader. And so all these stories begin in 88, and then it moves back and moves from there. It takes some things that happen in Mexicali. So it sounds almost like that this was... you. You couldn't do it the same way in a movie. This is a book, but it's also going to be a very large movie. It's going to be a large movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is that already underway? Uh, Yes. Well, that's exciting. I can't talk about it, but yes. Okay, because I was wondering if it was was in, in place of... Uh, no, it's no. it's. I always want. I always wanted to do this book. Yeah. I always wanted to to uh, explore the early life of these guys. Yeah. And then and then also where and to project to find a way to bring the past into the into the present and the present being about two thousand and two, seven years after the events of uh, of of the of Heat the movie. So how do you like? Are you how do you cast that if you're going to do a film? Very very large ways. Yeah. Because you're very, the casting, like, how did you get Tom Cruise to play against type like that? He just wanted to work with you. Oh, he loved the idea. He loved it? He loved the idea. And he's fantastic. Great. His dialogue in the back of that cab just still cracks me up. Yeah. And also, like, you got Russell Crowe right at the peak of Russell Crowe-ness. Yeah. Yeah, I I think Russell's work in in, in Insider is really amazing. All right, man. Well, so the book is exciting. Everything, like, and and you're you're busy, mostly the book tour now, or are you already just doing pre-production for stuff? No, I'm... I'm off on. Oh, that's uh, right. You're gonna do the Ferrari movie. Ferrari, yeah. So I'm leaving either tomorrow night or Tuesday night. And you Fridley. just produced Ford and Ferrari too. Did you, didn't you do that one? I, yeah, but I didn't. I didn't really work. I, I, I developed a script back when. You got fascination with, with cars with Jez. Um, I do, but that doesn't mean you make a movie about it. Yeah. What's driving this one? Uh, the whole movie is three months in a, three months of the summer of 1957, okay. and that's a Ferrari's life. And it's it's an opera. It's melodramatic. Oh, okay. It's um, everything he's been collides with what he might become, and the company's going bust, and his That's wife finds out about the other woman, and I mean it, it, it's a, it's a spectacularly operatic melodrama in real life. All right, well have fun. Great, I plan to. So, Thanks a lot, uh, man. Yeah, thank you.
That guy's a guy, man. That guy is a director guy. Heat 2, a novel, comes out August 9th. What an amazing talk with Michael Mann. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your books, so you're one of the first ones to have it. And uh, just hang out a minute. Can you hang out? Hang out a minute. So Nikki Glaser is back on the show on Thursday. Um, why? Well, we're starting to do that a little more, especially with people I know, especially with people who it's been a long time since I talked to, especially with people I want to talk to about other things maybe. And Nikki, you know, has got some things going on. She's got a special out there now. She's got a show, a, a funny fucking, I, it's some sort of, you know, uh, some, you know, fuck boy show. I, I don't know. But uh, Nikki Glaser, Nikki Glaser, and it got filthy very quickly, and it got got pretty raw and pretty real pretty quickly. So, um, and I like her, so we hung out. Uh, I'll be at Just for Laughs in Montreal for my gala or gala on Saturday, July thirtieth. I'll also be doing solo shows up there on July twenty eighth and 29th. In August, I'll be in Columbus, Ohio at the Southern Theater on August fourth. Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm at the Old National Center on August fifth. Louisville, Kentucky at the Bombard Theater August sixth. Then I'm back at Dynasty Typewriter in LA on August fourteenth. Lincoln, Nebraska at the Rococo Theater on August eighteenth. Des Moines, Iowa at the Hoyt Sherman Place on August nineteenth. And Iowa City, Iowa at the Englert Theater on August 20th. Then in September, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Boulder, Colorado, and Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In October, I'm in London, England, and Dublin, Ireland. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Man, four club shows in Vegas. Brain benders. The real work. Exhausted after that. Sweaty. Hundred and... 16 degrees out there. Definitely fuck you weather. Who's saying the fuck you? I don't know. Pick your God. Let's get out there on this. Let's get out there on this desert guitar. Let's get out there a little bit. Let's find it. Find it with a little bounce. A little echo.
Boomer lives. Monkey and La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere.